I know from my perspective, I would never want someone to do something for me because I scared them into it. You would rather someone do something for you because they want to do it for you. With someone who already has anxiety, you don't need any additional fear piled on top of oh, what no. you already have going on in your head. Welcome to Hope to Recharge podcast. Thank you for joining me here again today. Every week we meet here to break the stigma around mental health and to bring you insight and inspiration and lots of practical tips from personal stories or professionals around the world that share how they turn their journey of mental health into healing or to thriving. Together we will break the stigma one story at a time. And mental health together is always better. Thank you for joining me here today. I'm your host, Matana. Let's get started. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com, the leading online platform for therapy. You can access thousands of therapists one click away. Go check out BetterHelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. Get 10% off your first month. Start your wellness now. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining me here today. The year is almost over. I have an author with me and I am finishing his book and it's fascinating. And it's one of those books that's hard to put down unless it's 3 a.m. and your eyes are shutting on you, but you really want to get to the end of it. It's a book of inspiration, a memoir, how one person can really make such a deep impact on a child's life, even though many people were a negative impact on a life. And how do we find those people that believe in us, support us, cheerlead for us? Gary Sweeney, thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you. So I think we were on a group chat about books and you mentioned your new book that you published recently. What made you publish a book in your 40s? There was a couple of main reasons. First of all, I'm a big believer in not just remembering, but documenting, because I feel like the older we get, certain memories start to just fade out. And there are family members from my past who are no longer here that I wish I could have asked certain questions and I can't ask them anymore. And someday I may be that person for someone else. And there are things that they wish they would have asked me and they can, they won't be able to at that point. The focus of this book is combination of me growing up with anxiety and a byproduct having depression. But to highlight the relationship I had with my great-grandfather, a lot of people can't say that they even knew their great-grandparents, much less had a good relationship with them. And I wanted to get that down because while I remember it now, I don't know how distant those memories are going to be in another 20 or 30 years. And for nothing else, I wanted to make sure that I had a record of a person for me who was very important and very crucial in shaping the type of person I became. And I wanted to make sure that I had that down for my child. I think one of the big takeaways that I have from your book, The Light of Other Days, The Light of Other Days is because your great-grandfather passed away. He did. He passed away in 96. So the other days means back in the day when he was alive? Actually, it means when I was a kid and I was in the midst of my, what at the time just felt like a lot of confusion. I didn't realize at first that I had what we know now as anxiety. I didn't realize that I had certain sensory issues or hangups. I just knew that there was this kind of swarm of very uncomfortable feelings that nobody else around me seemed to have. I remember telling myself on a lot of occasions, because I spent a lot of time alone as a kid, I remember telling myself there are going to be other days when things are better. 
you get to the point, I got to the point that you start living for the possibility of those other days. Whenever they come, however you find them, you're just surviving for your next feeling of normalcy. For me, that's what the title meant because you're at that point, you're in darkness, but the other days is the light. So you're going towards that. Wow, it's beautiful. It reminds me of what I often say to people, when you have a high, hold on to it because the low is going to come and you're going to need to hold on to that memory of the high in order to get through the dark part. So don't take it for granted when the, the highs come, when those good days come, or even the average day, hold on to it because you're going to need to really dig deep in dark times to remember that there were some good days. Yeah, there are going to be good days. So... My big takeaway from your book, I highly recommend it. It's a beautiful read. So much rawness and so much of a real life, but one kid that went through so many, so many different emotions, so many different changes. And what you decided to do, you decided to highlight your great grandfather that was your hero versus to highlight all the abusive people in your life that you can become a victim to and say, you know what? My father was absent. He was not in my life, in and out of jail, abusive to me and my mom. He wasn't really ever abusive to me. You, right. You did say that. You said that he was just absent. Right. He was just absent. Um, I only really saw him about four or five times that I can remember uh, in my life. And the last time that I saw him, he didn't say a word to me and he just looked and walked away. That's abusive. I'm saying not physically. Your mother was physically abused by him and emotionally abused, but there's also mental abuse for not being present or not even trying for a child that you left. It's You were his son. So you could have been a product of saying, you know what? I, I can justify that I'm just going to live in misery my whole life because I had a very hard childhood. Bullying in school, not fitting in, anxiety, You can read it in the book. Everybody should read the book. But you decided in this book to highlight your great-grandfather's kindness. Yeah, I think it would be a disservice, honestly, to focus on the negative when he left that kind of an impact. People always say people remember, they remember bad memories more than they remember good memories. And take this as an example. If there were two different weeks in your childhood, one week you went to Disney World and the other week you spent running away from an axe murderer. You're going to remember that. You're not going to remember the trip to Disney World. I think that bad memories stay with you longer because I think they people feel that good memories are just normal. Just any day in your life when something good happens, it doesn't feel like something good is actively happening. It just feels like you had a normal day where nothing bad happened. Right. But a bad memory seems like when something bad happens to you, that seems like it's out of the ordinary. It puts like a dog ear, I think, in your memory. Yeah. Where you you just you keep going back to that. And I went back and forth with myself several times deciding on whether or not to even write it. Not because I didn't want to highlight those things and to talk about my great grandfather, but because objectively I realized that there are kids who grew up with much worse childhoods than that. There are children who are born in extreme poverty, who are physically and or sexually abused all the time. And by comparison, the stuff that I write about seems relatively tame. I struggled with wondering if this was going to come off as me just complaining. Not at all. I think what, aside from wanting to document things for posterity and make sure my daughter knows about my great-grandfather and the people who are important to me, I think that if you compare yourself to people who have it worse, you're going to feel like a complainer. But if you compare yourself to everybody else who had a very enjoyable, normal upbringing with a nuclear family, with family dinners every day and 
beautiful Norman Rockwell scenery, then your story by comparison, then, okay, maybe there's something there. I don't have to be on the extreme other end where I was severely abused every single day, but I'm definitely not on the Norman Rockwell side. Or we don't have to compare it to anybody and just say, this is my truth and this is my story. And even if 3% of the world will relate to it, at least 3% can relate to it. We can't fit into everyone, but we can show up with our story and our story can change. I know for myself, was my story awful? Yes, it was awful. Is it the worst in the world? I think in terms of mental illness, I had the Rolls Royce of recovery. I had family, I had community, I had love, I had the finances, like I had everything going for me. It still was hell for me. Still was, it was still difficult to recover. I still had to show up and do the work. So, do I not share it with people that have it worse? No, it gives hope. I think it gives hope and it gives clarity and it, it just gives an understanding that everybody goes through their own situation. And what do they choose to gain out of it? What do they choose to make out of it? So, give us a little bit of a background. You were born in Philadelphia, but you're fourth generation in Philadelphia, right? Or even fifth? Yeah, it goes back a while. I know that my great, great, great grandparents were from Southwest Philadelphia. They lived there. Most of my family is from somewhere in, at least on my mother's side, they're from somewhere in Pennsylvania, even if it's outside of the city, uh, 30, 40 minutes outside of the city, they're all from the same area. Mm-hmm. My dad's side was from upstate New York mm-hmm. and then eventually migrated down to New Jersey. And then the part of New Jersey that is right over the bridge from Philadelphia. So that's how like my dad and my mom came together. But yeah, I I grew up in Southwest Philadelphia, born and raised there. There's a very distinct culture in Philadelphia, especially for me in Philadelphia schools. It seems to be very split down the middle in Philadelphia. You either go to public school Mm -hmm. in the city or you go to Catholic school. Mm. There is no third option. Mm. At least there wasn't when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And those two different sides have their own respective cultures. I remember And I don't think it's necessarily a fair stigma, but I remember always hearing that the kids who went to public school in the city, which the public schools in the city weren't the best. They weren't terrible, but they just weren't the best. I was like always around that the kids who went to public school eventually were going to go down the wrong path. Mm. Uh, They weren't getting the education. They weren't getting the values. They weren't being steered in the right direction. So the alternative was to go to Catholic school, which had its own set of problems. And this is just reality. When I went there, it's it's not meant to blanket the entire Catholic school system, but there was a lot of discipline by fear. Mm. I know from my perspective, I would never want someone to do something for me because I scared them into it. You would rather someone do something for you because they want to do it for you. For the benefits. For the benefits. But Catholic school, when I went there, was all about fire and brimstone. And if you don't do this, you're going to go here. If you do this, you'll go here, but not if you do this. And you have to do it this way, because if you do it this way, then you're going to go here before you go there. And it's very, you know, you can't even keep track of it all. Your parents were Catholic. Your grandparents were Catholic. Yeah, I feel like that's just what you are by default mm-hmm. when you're in Philadelphia. And it was like a lot of Irish Catholics, a lot of Italian Catholics. I can tell you that being in a Catholic school environment where they use fear as a motivator with someone who already has anxiety you don't need any additional fear piled on top of what you already have going on in your head. Can you say Um, that again? Because I think not only Catholic schools need to hear it, I think parents have to hear it, Jewish schools, communities, governments. What you said is so important. 
so important and i think maybe the biggest takeaway of this podcast episode if kids are struggling with anxiety already for things that are going on in their head that they're not making sense of because that's how they're programmed because they don't have the tools yet because they don't even know that they have anxiety you were saying that you didn't even know that you had anxiety you didn't you thought that you just knew that you were different but you didn't even know that it was anxiety until later on in life we're just surviving to add on fear and to add on a lot of no's no's no 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 and the fear of hell or the repercussions is not beneficial to anybody's survival. And I think a lot of death by suicides are because of that, because it's just too much. It's just too much to process. And the people around you who don't have anxiety and then as a result don't understand anxiety, their response to your anxiety is more disciplined because they think that when you're reacting to your anxiety, they just feel like you're acting out. They see the result. They don't see the cause. And they so don't know about it. Yeah. Sometimes they don't validate it. Just think positive. Just don't worry about it. If it was that easy, that's all we would all do that. Right. We want to not have anxiety. It's not like we gravitate to it because we enjoy it. And I say we, because I struggle from anxiety. I did learn out of the 11 past years, how to deal with it, how to have boundaries, healthy boundaries to decrease the anxiety, what to do when I feel it coming on, how to have conversations with myself. When I was little, the only conversation was going on in my head was about the anxiety. Right. Let's go back a little bit. I want a sneak peek of your childhood with your anxiety. I want to just catch the listeners up. So your parents got married very young. They got divorced when you were a little child. Your father's father passed away. So he was not in the picture very young. My mother's oh, father. Passed your away. mother's your mother's father. Sorry, your mother's father. Your father wasn't in your life. He basically right. left, right? Then your mother's grandfather, which was your great-grandfather, was the pillar of the family and the saving factor of your life. And right. he was the one that basically saw you and attended to you. And he was everything that you were looking forward to through a day. So you would go to school, have a few hours there, and you would describe in the book. I highly recommend to read the book because if anybody has anxiety or has a child that's struggling with anxiety, I think this book just gives you a sneak peek of what it's like to be a little child that doesn't even know how to explain it. It doesn't even know that he's going through it. Like it's really powerful. So you describe a scene of being in a daycare and having nap time. And if it was 30 minutes, that felt like 30 days for you. And all you could wait was for that tick tock of the clock to say, okay, it's over. And you had this thing going on in your head, how to survive it. What was that like as a little child that didn't know how to express that? It's like being in quicksand. I mean, that's probably the best way I can describe it. So I was sent to daycare because my mother was very paranoid about even just being in the care of my great grandparents. She was convinced that something could and most likely would happen to me if I didn't have several adults watching me at once. And as a parent, I get it. Like, I understand you being afraid something might happen to your child. I do understand. As a child, you don't understand why your parent is acting that way. So I was sent to this daycare in the summer. Objectively, I don't think it was a bad place. I had what I would consider an inability to really pay attention. And whatever the teachers would say, I really wouldn't hear them. I would almost just tune them out because I had this kind of almost droning buzz I had a looping inner monologue and all I really heard was what I was thinking, not really what people were saying to me. Mm -hmm. So they just had a nap time every day. Okay, we're all going to take a nap now. And they put out these mats and everybody would get on the mat. Mostly everybody else would fall asleep. And I just never understood that. I'm like, how can you just drop down on command and just go to sleep? 
<laughs> you're almost like in a room with a bunch of people who have narcolepsy. <laughs> I just don't understand how you everybody can just on on schedule just go to sleep. It just doesn't make sense. I could never ever fall asleep. We were supposed to be just very 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 quiet and to me that just amplified all the sounds in the room. Yes. I just I just heard the the clock was like it was going, you know, through a megaphone and I know I heard cars driving by outside. I heard people like mumbled talking from other parts of the building. I just heard everything. And I focused most on the sound of the clock. And I said, okay, I know that when I hear it tick 60 times, that means one minute has gone past. So I'm just going to count how many instances of 60 there are until we can get back up. And then I'll know every day how long I have to be on the floor. And you were five or three at the time? It was between first and second grade. I was probably about five or six. Oh my God. So you had a system to survive. You planned your own system to survive. I, I think anybody with anxiety, their whole routine becomes about survival. You just learn. And a lot of that is avoidance. You just learn how to not be in situations that are going to amplify your anxiety. Yeah. Or I find that with me, a lot of times my anxiety will be triggered by being in a crowded space where I, every time I feel like I turn around, there's just somebody right there. Mm. I just almost feel trapped and suffocated and claustrophobic. And it's just a feeling of not being able to get out. For me, the, the whole clock thing in daycare, it was about figuring out when I could get out. Wow. So at least you have that light at the end of the tunnel. You know, I'm not going to be down here forever. You're just trying to talk yourself out of the, out of the, out of the panic attack, basically. Wow. How is it for you today with your anxieties? Do you still have systems to deal with it? I do. I think that most people do if they have anxiety. I think it becomes more about knowing what to avoid. Boundaries. You, you, you can't control every situation. You have to know every once in a while you'll come in contact with it. I think you have better coping skills as an adult than you do when you're a child. You're just, your brain is more developed. Just through the course of life, you learn how to deal with certain things, but I don't. Day to day, I think I'm pretty comfortable just doing most things that I have to do. I think it's always there. You can put six deadbolts on your the front of your door, but there's a thief still driving around somewhere outside. Mm. You can't ever stop what's outside. Mm. All you can do is lock yourself from the inside. Wow. And I, I think I think that's the best way I can describe it. Wow. Do you think that your anxiety is based on trauma or even if you would be born to the perfect family, loving dad, loving mom, they love each other, siblings, financial stability, everything is okay. Do you think the anxiety would be as amplified or do you think it's based on trauma? That's a good question. I don't know if it's born into you or you develop it as a result of your circumstances. I think you can have it even if you have a very happy family. I do, do think there are circumstances that can magnify it. Mm -hmm. You know, anxiety, I, as I've always heard, is like a constant trauma response. Your body is Protect. it's in a constant, constant state of protection and almost mm -hmm. like recovery. Mm -hmm. If you go to the gym and you lift weights for two hours, your body has to recover from that. It's actually experienced a little bit of a trauma and it has to rest. And so right. it, it is a lot of protection. I, I think in my case, I don't remember a ton of it, but I know that when I was very, very young before my mom and dad split. I was around a lot of screaming, a lot of uh, physical violence. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how much of that an infant would internal, who knows, it could go into your subconscious or mm -hmm. it just teaches you that there's danger everywhere. And I, I think that people with anxiety, they're just, as I said, they're just more aware mm -hmm. of what could go wrong, what mm -hmm. dangers are out there, what's what is possible. Mm -hmm. 
someone with sensory issues on top of that, not only are aware of what could go wrong, but they hear it coming Mm -hmm. or they feel it coming. And sometimes we we want to turn it off, but we can't because we're just so in tune. Right. Yeah. So your great-grandfather raised you basically until you were in your late teens. Did you ever have anger to your father that he was not in your life? No. You know, it was really normal to me. What used to be really strange to me is when I would be around a couple of friends. I didn't never really had a wide circle of friends. There's only one or two. Mm -hmm. I always found it really odd when they would ask their fathers for permission to do something. Because in my case, there was never a parental figure with any authority. Your mom, but your mom was very protective. I'm sorry, a male parental figure with with any authority. Mm -hmm. If I wanted to do something, I'd have, I'd ask my mom. Mm. My friends would ask their dads. And I remember thinking to myself, like, why? What does he have to do with it? You know, like your mom makes the decisions, right? Like your dad's just there. Look how perspective changes just by our reality. I never really had any anger towards him. I didn't really know the difference. To me, it was just normal that he wasn't there. And I had a, instead I had this stepfather figure who is, he was really just like a very big child. I wouldn't consider, I mean, he wasn't parental. He wasn't, I wouldn't even say he was authoritative, but he was very manipulative. Mm -hmm. And I I think a lot of parents, they'll say to their kid, if you don't do this, if you don't behave, you're not going to get this. I do it. I think it's normal. But it's another thing to, it's one thing to say that. It's another thing to terrify a kid into doing something. And that's, unfortunately, that was the situation I was in. Yeah. And there was no love. It, It wasn't like there was a balance between love and authority. There was just being manipulative and strict and no benefits out of it. Well, from this, my stepfather, yeah. yeah there wasn't, it wasn't coming from a place of love or affection. It was just, you're just going to do what I say. Mm. And then there was your great-grandparents. It sounds like they had a beautiful marriage from the book. And you describe how your great-grandfather lost his business. He lost his pension. He worked for Midvale Steel, which was mm-hmm. a really prestigious steel company in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. probably the biggest. Aside from the steel mills in Pittsburgh, Midvale was really a household name back then. And he'd worked for them for almost 40 years. Mm-hmm. When he's turned 62, he was going to retire and collect his pension that the majority of which was from money that Midvale deducted from his own earnings right. and put aside for him. And then they matched it, I think, up to a certain percent, but a good deal of it was his own money. Instead, what happened was the company basically just imploded and he was only 61. So he was too young to collect a pension. They ended up shutting down, going out of business when he was 61. And he mm-hmm. took his and several other people's pension with them. A couple of his coworkers tried to sue them. Nothing really worked. And they just stole all the money basically that he had invested in his retirement. So when it was time for him to retire, he didn't have any money. And he was, at that time, he's 61. I mean, nobody really hired 61-year-olds to to do steel mill work. And by that time, steel wasn't even that important anymore. It's not like the middle, you know, mid-century when there were still wars being fought and they needed the steel for guns and tanks. But those days passed. And so the importance of working in a steel mill just fizzled out. So he didn't really have anything, and he went into a really deep depression. For, he did? Uh, he like went into a, a very, very deep depression for about two or three years. And how did he get out of it? My birth brought him out of it. Oh, really? Yeah. And that's why he started investing all his time he had and picking you up and spending time and afternoons and weekends with you. That was right. his life back again. Mm-hmm. How did he support himself? Eventually, he was able to collect Social Security. And their house was, thankfully, it was paid off. So he at least had that. The social security was enough to buy food and 
put gas in his car and things like that. And he did for a while take some odd jobs around his neighborhood. He used to go around to his neighbors and just cut their lawn, do like landscaping mm-hmm. work, things like that, just to earn a little side income. Wow. But then it got to the point where he'd spent so much time trying to fight back to get his pension and all of it was for nothing. And he was just one disappointment after the next. And he just, he just ran out of fight. Mm-hmm. And then he just, he just went into this depression and he always wanted a son. He had two daughters. He never had a son. So when I was born, I think that was that void being filled for him because I didn't really have a father figure and he didn't have a son. Mm. So it was like solving each other's problem. The first couple of years, I would say when I was about two to three is when I really started to spend a lot of time with him and at their house. And then from that point forward, like I described when I went to the daycare, Patterson, we were supposed to leave at two or three in the afternoon, three thirty-four, and he would show up at noon and take me out because he knew I didn't want to be there. And he would rather have me. And they all knew him. It's not like he was a stranger picking me up. They knew who he was. So that, you know, they would let him leave with me early and we would just go back to his house and watch television, get candy from the candy store. And what happened later on in life? What lessons did he give you to get through life while he was alive? Because he passed away when you were in your teens. So what do you think are the biggest lessons he gave you to move forward in life and make the best life for yourself? Do you sometimes feel stuck? Do you wish you can be somewhere else? Do you have a vision of where you want to get to, but you just don't know what the first step to take in order to get to that life that you're dreaming of? Many people ask me, what did I do in order to create this wellness that I'm living in? How did I shift from deep depression, from extreme anxiety to a thriving life, to a productive life, to a life full of joy? I put many things into practice and it's every single day. Many of you know that it's gratitude, a healthy mindset boundaries, self-love, and one of the most important things that many people don't speak about, forgiveness, self-forgiveness and forgiveness to others, essential for healing. If you want to work one-on-one with me in order to move forward towards that dream life that you have a vision of, click the link below in the show notes. It's a custom-made program for you, one-on-one with me. We will develop a concrete program that you can implement in your life so you can create a better well-being. Click the link below. Looking forward to working with you. What do you think are the biggest lessons he gave you to move forward in life and make the best life for yourself? What I took away, I think, most from him is that being present is what matters. I don't remember any gifts I ever got from my mom. I don't remember any gifts from him or my great I don't remember anything that people gave me, but I remember the time. Hmm that I had with him. I remember the things he did with me. I I remember the things he taught me, the places he took me. Those are the things I remember. Hmm. I don't remember toys and things like that. Those come and go. I I think time and being present is what is most important to other people. I could buy people in my life everything that they want, but if I'm never around, it doesn't matter. They're just going to sit in a room with a bunch of things. Yeah. Did you watch the movie, I think, Milton's Secret? No, I've never about, seen it. It's about a little boy and he has anxiety. He has fear from bullying, anxiety, and he's a very deep thinker. And he talks about his grandfather and his grandfather is very Eckhart Tolle, the power of now, be in the now. Don't worry about the future. Don't bring the past into the now. Just be in the now and come present and enjoy it. And what you're saying, be with people, cultivate your relationships, because that's really what matters. It's very similar to your story. And he broke free from this bully friend that was really attacking him constantly. 
And what he really saw in the bully was that this bully was being bullied at home Mm -hmm. and he saw it in him and he became, instead of judging him, he showed up for him, even though he punched him in the face and abused him, really abused him. And he realized, I'm not going to attack him. I'm going to see his pain, which is Mm -hmm. fascinating. Just a fascinating movie about come into the now, see what's going on. What's the wound of this person? And you talk about bullying in your book and how you were quiet, 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 quiet. And then you decided to go head on and the kid never attacked you again. But there is so much pain in the world an ununderstood pain that comes out like bullying. And usually the target of bullying are the quiet ones, right? The quiet, timid, anxious one. Yeah. And if we can really see each other and know that everybody wants to be seen, everybody has their story, everybody has their wounds, and we're all the same. We're really all the same, but in different forms. So tell me and now, so you got married, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. You have, you have two children, a stepdaughter and a daughter, right? Yep. They're your whole life right now. Which is really interesting coming from an environment where I was a stepchild. Yeah. So I was on one end of the dynamic and now mm-hmm. I'm on the other end of the dynamic. And are you making sure that it's completely the opposite showing up? Yeah, it, it is completely the opposite. As I said, when I was a stepchild, I was terrified into submission. Mm-hmm. What made it worse, I think, is that I really believe that my stepfather picked up on the idea of me having some sort of, I don't know that he would, that he realized it was anxiety. I don't even mm-hmm. know how well understood that even was in the 80s when I was a kid. But I do think he picked up on something, whether it was emotional sensitivity or something. I feel like he picked up on something that something was there. And I feel like he decided to use it to his advantage. Mm. Or maybe it wasn't even conscious. It was just like, he saw that it worked. So he used it. Sometimes we're not sure why something worked. We're like, hey, but this is working. So let me just continue not even thinking if it's hurting the other person. There were a few things that happened where there wasn't any confusion over whether or not it was harmful. He knew it was harmful. He could see my reaction. And instead of checking himself and saying, wait a minute, maybe this is going too far. He just stepped on the gas harder. Wow. Yeah. Did you ever forgive him? I don't know that I ever really held a grudge to begin with. It's so weird to say, but, and as odd as it feels to even say it now, that was just so normal back then to me that I didn't realize, aside from seeing friends who had nuclear families and I didn't see any of that going on, but it would have been weirder to me to think that not everybody lived that way. Yeah. That was just normal to me. And Mm -hmm. I knew that parents, all parents use threats, regardless of how harmful or harmless they are. All parents use threats. Oh, can't have dessert if you don't finish your dinner. Mm -hmm. Something that basic on that level, it's cause and effect. If you don't do this, this is going to happen. In in principle, it's the same, except it's, you're saying, if you don't do what I say, someone will kidnap you in the middle of the night and drag you away. That's what I was told. There's a part in my book where I describe what my stepfather used to do to, I won't even say make me behave because I never was a bad child. I never misbehaved. I was very timid. I was very quiet. I didn't have it in me to misbehave, Mm -hmm. but he didn't want me to behave. He wanted subservience. He wanted me to do what I was told as arbitrary as it was. It didn't matter if he wanted me to walk into the other room and turn around three times and come back. He wanted me to do that. I wasn't allowed to ask why. That doesn't make any sense. Why would mm-hmm. I do that? Why would anybody do right. that? Right. The fact that he was the adult and I was the child, that was the only dynamic I needed to know. Like he said yeah. it, it has to be done. That's it. So what he used to do is he used to simulate, and I, I don't really feel like this is giving anything away, but 
he, just to bring this into perspective, he used to simulate a phone call that I thought was real to a, because I was young enough to believe whatever he was telling me. He used to simulate a phone call to this group of, as he described them, like 20 foot tall, very dark beings, mm. almost otherworldly beings. And their whole purpose was to, if I didn't do what I was told, was to come past my window in the middle of the night. Oh my God. And drag me out through the window and then just take me away and I wouldn't be seen again. Oh my God. And I had anxiety. So I'm imagining what they look like. I'm imagining what they sound like. I'm imagining what it feels like to be taken through the window. And he would just keep dialing the phone and I would just scream and scream and scream and scream. Where was your mom? He would do this when my mom was at work. My mother was very focused on her career. She would work any overtime she was given. She was involved in two or three different organizations to promote like women in business and things like that. So she was focusing all of her time on that. Mm-hmm. And I think there may have been a part of my stepfather that was resentful that I was left with him. Mm. But he would simulate this phone call and he would dial and dial and I would just be screaming and screaming and basically pleading and telling him I'll stop. And I didn't even know what I was supposed to be stopping. I didn't know what I had done. And then he'd hold the phone away from his ear and he said, are you sure? Are you going to behave? And I would say, yes, I would scream. He goes, and he would act like he was thinking, he was like, that's too late. They're coming anyway. Oh my God. At what point did you not learn that he's lying? It took a while. Because I, at that point, I think I was still really too young. I had a vivid imagination as a kid. I still do. So mm-hmm. I filled in the details he wasn't giving me wow. with my anxiety. Wow. So he would say, oh, it's, it's too late. They're coming. And then finally, he would hang up. And he would say, no, they're, they're, they're not going to show up. I didn't even give them our address. But I was at a state at that point where I couldn't calm down. Basically, it's what we know today as a panic, panic attack. attack. Would, and then he would just laugh at me. Why didn't you ever tell your mom, you know, your husband's torturing me. This is not okay. He had something over me. It was one time when I, he saw me forging my mother's name on a test that I didn't want her to see. And he held that over my head for years. And he said, if you tell your mom. You tell her anything. I'm just going to tell you forge your signature. Oh, that is so terrible. He sounds like a big bully, like just one big bully Uh, that that I think his own stuff. And he could have years later thinking about it. I always look back and like you said, I'm like, how did I not realize this was just BS? How could I not have figured this out? I almost felt stupid for believing it. We're children, especially right. with anxiety. Oh my God. Right. And, and, I think and, that was and adults are supposed to be the authority, right? I think the anxiety was really what compounded it. I, I think if I had not had anxiety, I might've been afraid, but I don't think I would have been in hysterics. Where is he now? He still lives somewhere nearby. I don't really know where. I know he's still living, but I don't know where he lives. Did they get divorced? Him and my mother? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was about 18. Okay. So when you left, right after you lost your great-grandfather, they got divorced? Not long after. Did your mother ever apologize for being married to him and leaving him with you? Yeah, she has. She used to say, she said a few times, you know, you really should have said something to me. If I would have found out what have happened, I would have flew off the handle at him. Right. But I said, you have to understand at that age, that would have meant you finding out about that forged signature. Hmm. And also you, know, like, you didn't want to cause her pain. She went through so much pain already. I'm going to add more pain to my mom's life. She never really loved my stepfather. She married him for stability. Mm-hmm. Because one thing about him is he always, he was never out of work. He always worked. He went to work every day. Mm-hmm. Paid all of his bills. Huge contrast to my dad, who right. didn't care how many bills they had. If he didn't like the job, he would just quit. So I think it was just the comparison between financial stability. Like, I think it was financial stability, not mm-hmm. stability. Mm-hmm. 
because financially you can be stable and you can be unstable a million other ways. Yeah. That's what it was for her was the financial stability of knowing that there would be two people working and bringing home an income rather than just her. Mm -hmm. I feel like her mentality at that time, as most, I think, single mothers think is, look, my child comes with me. It's a package. You take me, you take the child. They don't think, what if they don't like the child? I think my mother felt that he was just going to like me because I was a product of her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like I said, I didn't feel that way when we all lived together. I felt like he looked at me like a box he forgot to donate. Yeah. Oh, God. You said, you said those words in the book. I remember like getting goosebumps when I read it. It's so painful to feel that way. The constant not belonging, constant being the person that he doesn't want. How's your relationship with your mom now? I think it's fine. She's apologized for a lot of things that happened back then, even though she wasn't aware of a lot of them as they were happening. Um, She was trying the best she could at the time. She's a single mom, like surviving abuse. She married him for financial stability, but she didn't like having to do that. To this day, she doesn't like depending on anyone else financially. What she was doing is she was trying to work her way out of having to depend on anyone. Unfortunately, that required her to be at work all the time. She wasn't available. And it just left me and him. And I found out years later, he had a porn addiction Mm. and he would make me go up in my room and stay there so that he could be by himself. Wow. Yeah, I'll leave it at that. And that's where a lot of that disciplinary action came in when he yeah. would tell me to go upstairs and I didn't want to. Right. I didn't understand why I had to. And he couldn't really tell me why he wanted me to. Right. I didn't even protest. The more I questioned, he just got more and more and more agitated. Right. Wow. Do you think seeing your great grandparents as a loving marriage gave you hope to your own marriage? Because thinking about your mother's two marriages, it's the worst role modeling for a child that wants to have a happy marriage. What gave you that hope for yourself and not say, forget it, I'm not getting married? I did see other people's marriages outside of my mother's. All my friends had relatively well-adjusted parents, Mm -hmm. and I never saw anything in their homes like I saw in my home. That's what made me feel like even more of an outsider. Even though it felt normal, I didn't understand why our situation was so different. Mm -hmm. But one thing I can tell you about my great-grandfather that he taught me that neither my stepfather or biological father taught me is how to be a father. How to show up. How to show up, How what not to do. Because I remember the feeling of knowing that someone will be there, and you don't have to continue convince them to be there. You don't have to ask them. They're just there because they want to be. Trust. I lived across the street from where we would pick up the bus to go to school. Mm -hmm. I could have literally walked out of my house and across the street and I would be there. But he thought it was in the wintertime, he thought it was too cold for me to do that. So he would drive his car around. We lived around the corner from each other. So he would drive his car around and pick me up and he'd have a hot plate of breakfast on a seat next to him. Oh my God. I would just sit in his car and eat that. and just wait for the bus to show up. And then when the bus would show up, I'd get out of his car and then he'd get on a bus, he'd go home. And then when I got off the bus in the afternoon, he'd be there in his car every day until I was old enough to not need him to drive me. And then he would still walk over there and meet me. He adored you, adored you. Every day. Wow. And your grandmother would be as loving and caring also, or was it more him and you? She would make the breakfast and send him (laughs) out with it. Yeah. So they never really fought, but they bickered. I remember I described them as like Fred and Ethel Mertz. <laughs> That's really how they were. Yeah. And they would just crack back and forth at each other. And then five minutes later, wouldn't remember even doing it. Right. 
and they would just go back to normal. And it was a big contrast from seeing two people argue back and forth and then forget about it and go back to watching whatever television show they were watching versus a lot of the violence and screaming I saw the other way that led to that just snowballed into worse. Yeah. So I have two final questions for you. Do you have a mission in your life after what you went through? I think for me, I I am now remembering the anxiety, but also sensory issues. I have my eye on my youngest and I'm looking for the slightest indication of any of those behaviors because I, unfortunately, aside from my great grandparents, I was around people who didn't recognize those things. Mm. And when those things did materialize, they they were misconstrued as misbehaving. Right. Like I said earlier, I have an aversion to certain sounds. I have an aversion to certain textures and certain types of lighting, things like that. And so I'm watching the youngest one to see if she starts exhibiting any of those things mm-hmm. so that she doesn't have to be in an environment where people don't understand her. And just knowing that I would know how to recognize those things. I, I used to cover my ears with certain noises. I used to put my hand up to block out certain types of lighting. Right. So if I see her doing anything like that, when she gets to the age where I can ask her, does that sound bother you? Does that light bother you? Tell me why that sound bothers you. Things like that. So that she doesn't have to suppress all of that because mm-hmm. she doesn't think anybody else understands her. So it sounds like your mission is really to show up for you, be the best dad you can. That's your mission in life, to be the best my dad. My mission is to be half of what my great-grandfather was to me. Half. At least half. Beautiful. So Gary, my last question that I usually ask everyone, what does hope mean to you? For me, I think it's hope is just having a reason. Whatever that reason is, having a reason to get up the next day, having a reason to go towards whatever your goals are, your dreams are, your aspirations, whatever it is, just having that. That's all you need is the reason. You don't have to have the answer. You just have to have the reason. That's for me what it is. Yeah. Thank you for writing your book, The Light of Other Days, um, a beautiful memoir. And it brings contrast of all kinds of human beings. And which one do we want to show up as a parent, as a leader, as a human, as a neighbor, as a spouse. Thank you for sharing your journey and your experience, whether it's the most dramatic one or not, it's your experience, it's your reality. And I'm sure so many people can relate to it and get out of it something. I enjoyed reading it. And I'm grateful that you were willing to come and share it with us and to just show people that you can either be a victim of your history or the owner of your destiny. And I think that you're really owning your future and your destiny and you're trying to do the best you can and focus on the light, the light. Yes. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And if anybody wants to share this episode with anybody that needs a little bit of hope, a little bit of insight, a little bit of courage to choose the light, look for the light, look for hope, share this episode. Looking forward to speaking to you next time. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening till the end. We highly appreciate all of our listeners. And Mental Health Together is better. You being here means a tremendous amount to us. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like some extra boost of information and inspiration that is not on the podcast, you can go to our website, hopetorecharge.com. There's some premium content that for the cost of a cup of coffee, you can download some amazing information that will help you, a tool that will guide you through life. 
So don't skip a beat. Don't hesitate. Go to hopetorecharge.com and see what other offerings we have there for your mental health well-being. Thank you for joining us. And remember, if you enjoyed this and you want to say thank you, the best way of gratitude will be by you leaving a review or a comment or sharing this with a loved one. There is no greater form of gratitude for us. Thank you. Bye till next time. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com, the leading online platform for therapy. You can access thousands of therapists one click away. Go check out BetterHelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. Get 10% off your first month. Start your wellness now.